Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm joined by Jarrett Kobeck to talk about his latest novel, Only Americans Burn in Hell. Jarrett Kobeck is a Turkish-American writer living in California. His novella Atta, a psychedelic biography of the 9-11 hijacker Mohammed Atta, was an unexplained bestseller in parts of Canada. His novel I Hate the Internet was a bestseller everywhere, doing especially well in Serbia. His follow-up novel, The Future Won't Be Long, wasn't a bestseller anywhere, but did receive a shortlisting for the Literary Review's 2017 Bad Sex in Fiction Award and was published in the United States by a company that printed propaganda for Nazi Germany. Jarrett's latest book, Only Americans Burn in Hell, we're going to be talking about today. Jarrett, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Almost every novel we do on this show, I start by asking the question, how would you describe this book? And I do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because how would you describe the book is a pointedly different question to what's this book about. But also, often, how an author thinks of their own novel their own elevator pitch or whatever mm. is different from what the blurb right. in the book often is that's written with you know marketing in mind or something. And I think that's particularly pertinent today because as well as having one of the best biogs I've ever, I've ever read out, this book has also got a, a blurb which ostensibly doesn't really describe the book at all. Um, so, Jared, how would you describe Only Americans Burning I, w- I would describe it as a book... That is about someone whose last novel has been a profound failure, quite cynically deciding that he will write a fantasy novel only to discover halfway through it that for a variety of things happening in the real world and then a variety of things happening personally, he's completely incapable of writing a fantasy novel. And then may or may not go through a nervous breakdown that leads to his realization that because this last book has been such an incredible failure, all of the things that he spent his life working toward, or his the last 10 years of his life working towards, are hollow. And actually what he did with his past, in terms of this, particularly the book that failed, was just buying into sort of the sold-out bullshit of cultural production in the 21st century and that maybe the cultural production for the 21st century is a really good metaphor for the sold-out bullshit of the entire 21st century 
And then having made that realization, doubling down and just committing career suicide. Well, let's talk about how we got to this book then. So sure. I mentioned I Hate the Internet, which yeah, was yeah. a massive bestseller and you know, like a bit of a sort of core celeb, but actually was, was fundamentally self-published to begin with, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I couldn't get any, much like this book, actually, um, I couldn't get anyone in the US to publish it. And what I ended up doing is founding a press and publishing it, but had been around the block enough to know that there is no way that a book that just appeared self-published could succeed. So did everything that I could to obscure those origins. You know, there was no indicator that I had any relationship to the press. I bought the services, or I hired the services, rather, of a very good publicist who did a spectacular job on the book. And then it just sort of spiraled out of there. And then, you know, somehow ended up reviewed in the New York Times, which in, in the U.S. is probably one of the three of the Holy Trinity, if you want to become sort of a literary figure. And obviously, much to my shame, I did want to become a literary figure. And so then with that review, then it, once that review happened, it was like, well, f fuck it. I'm not pretending that this wasn't self-published, which I actually think came back and bit me on the ass later. But with that review, which was incredibly positive, was in the art section above the fold on the front page and was photographed. The book was photographed in this really funny way because the original cover of I Hate the Internet in the U.S. was meant to be as hideous as possible. And I would argue, although no one will ever agree with this, was probably one of the best designed covers ever because it really worked. Anyway, when the Times photographed it, it looked beautiful. I have no idea how they managed to do it. But it put me in this position where, like, the book, that caught the attention of international people. Although, to be, you know, Serpent's Tale already wanted to do the book before then. So in the UK, it was a little bit different. But it, you know, it turned me into this bizarre thing where suddenly the book, when it was presented in the various territories it was published in, in translation, was like... I don't know. Like it, it was it was like it was handed down like a, a tablet on the mount, essentially. And in Germany, you know, and my publishers there did a really, really good job, but they transformed the booth, uh, which was like this thousand square foot booth. It's Fisher Verlag. They're one of the most respected publishers in Germany. I think they had published like Kafka and Thomas Mann, you know, really heavy hitting people. And for some reason, they decided that this book would be the first time they ever did a stunt. And so they, in about two minutes, transformed the booth into, like, this sea of I hate the internet. And it's German title. But, it, you know, you could have seen my soul leave my body because it was horrific. I, I mean, it was very nice that they did it. But it was just, like, wandering around Frankfurt for a couple of days. And they had printed up these tote bags so anywhere I would go in the city, it would just be people carrying these red tote bags with the book's title on it. And, you know, in the booth, too, when they unfurled the banners, I'm just standing there thinking, like, you know you're in trouble when Germans are starting to unroll red banners, right? Like, it's just the weirdest thing. Anyway, it led to – all of this led to Penguin Random House acquiring – the next book in the U.S. I mean, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And it was a disaster. 
Like it was, I, it, like it instantly turned me into the most pathetic one-hit wonder you could possibly imagine. So what happened? Why did it uh, fail the second book? Uh, some of it was not their contr- in their control. Like some literary publishing in the U.S. after Trump got elected really took a hit. So even books that were handled well and got a lot of coverage still didn't sell very much. So that that wasn't their fault, and that was a huge component of it. Part of it, I think, is that it was a strange follow-up to I Hate the Internet. Um, But in my defense, when that happened, I didn't know I Hate the Internet was going to be this enormous thing. I was just like, well, fuck, I better take the money and run, because this is never going to happen again, which has turned out to be true, but in a different way than I imagined. And then they didn't do a very good job on the book. They put a really murky cover on it. They insisted on a title that I didn't want. And then, you know, as near as I can tell, their entire marketing strategy was, well, let's make sure that the guy who reviewed I Hate the Internet in The Times also reviews this. And I have a paranoid theory. And, like, you know, supposedly there's this whole mechanism of, like, people chasing people in elevators and everyone being... Assured, no, the review is coming, the review is coming. And then it never appeared. I kind of think that may have been the fact that I Hate the Internet, by virtue of pretending that it wasn't self-published, kind of played a trick on Mm -hmm. the Times because they don't review self-published books. And so, like, Chris Krause, who I think at this point anyone would say is a major American writer has never been reviewed in the Times because most of her books in the U.S. appear on semiotext, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, she's an editor there. So by a certain point of view, that's self-publishing, even though I think anyone would say that's absurd. But, you know, like they didn't review her bio of Kathy Acker, which came out roughly at the same time. So in my more paranoid moments, I think it was just punishment. But no, Penguin did a terrible job. You know, in an even more paranoid moment, I tend to think maybe that's the business model, right? Where it's like Penguin is owned by – Penguin itself is a multi-billion dollar company. It's owned by Bertelsmann, which is also a multi-billion dollar company. And maybe they need things that are in, in the red to offset things that are in the black, You know, like maybe this is why literary novels come out and everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's really good. And like five people buy it. And maybe it's designed to be like that. And I would never say that the people that I worked with thought that because I don't think that's true at all. But I do think maybe structurally at the corporate level, these things are designed to fail because that's how you offset too many gains. There's also there's this myth of, of publishing that most literary works doesn't sell and then, right. you know, each publisher has their yeah. Harry Potter or whatever. Right. Do you know what I mean? That funds yeah, yeah. the entire company. I, 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 think, I think in the US, those are primarily books by right-wing authors. <laughs> that that's Bill O'Reilly is yeah. our J.K. Rowling. Yeah, it's true. I mean, literary books are a harder sell. I think... It's one of these things that has happened actually in the culture industry where when the money was more obvious and when they were more dependent on things, artists would be nurtured over a longer period of time. Like the thing that I always think about is like – and God knows he's successful sort of. Like when Kanye West went 
first it became apparent he had gone really nuts when he was like on tour and he was canceling tours and all this stuff. He was in the most abstract sense indistinguishable from like Axl Rose in the 90s. He was dating the most one of the most famous models in the world. He was super famous. And I think one of the reasons why Kanye ended up in the mental hospital is just that that vast mechanism of nurturing artists and making sure that the machine is running has disappeared completely. And I think publishing is the same way. People in the U.S. are always like, well, writers used to be really famous. And it's like, well, why do you think they used to be really famous, right? Like, whoever was publishing Norman Mailer, they had a vested interest in making sure that guy was on TV as much as possible. But the, you know, the downside from a sort of corporate perspective is that Norman Mailer was awful to deal with, right? And maybe it's just easier to pump out a bunch of books about, I don't know, footballers' recoveries from depression and then not have to deal with the really complicated personalities that end up producing a literary career that goes across 30 years. So being I'm, a ghostwriter is is probably where it's at yeah, these oh, days. I'm, oh, I, I, th- <laughs> I think it's probably always been where it's at, but now really is where it's at. Well, this book itself, you know, in, in a colossal effort of burning bridges, attacks a lot of name companies in the publishing industry, but I, th- I think... What I want to talk to you about is the very idea that that you talk about in the book, that the novel itself, the literary novel, is fundamentally a 19th century form still, and it's constantly sort of like refined or or pastiche. And again, like every now and then there'll be a, you know, talk in the book about how journalism has become just, you know, the production of op-eds and and hot takes. And, you know, just recently Will Self published a thing about the the death of the novel and it gets lots of, you know, hits and people saying, you know, this is a load of... A load of nonsense. But, you know, you're right. The novel has so many things to compete with now for people's attention, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the thing – I was thinking about it a week ago and realized I had come up with a much more elegant thought than anything in the book, which is maybe the right parallel to think about the novel is what happened to painting after the introduction of photography, Mm -hmm. right? Because painting – certainly not during the medieval period, but during the early modern period, sort of became about depiction, right? Portraiture or landscape or all of these things. And then the introduction of photography, you can see almost immediately that suddenly French Academy painters are useless and now you need pointillism and then it just continues to expand and then somewhere falls apart into something else. But maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's like because the internet is video and a ton of writing and that that kind of writing sort of serves all of the functions that people have thought about the novel serving for well over 100 years. Maybe there's not – maybe part of the reason why these books seem so pathetic is that if you can take a photograph, why do you need a painting? If you can read an 800-word article about, I don't know, some celebrity narrative and the whole arc of it and the moral of it is really clear, maybe, you know, maybe that means that the novel has has to fundamentally transform or has to fundamentally become something else. The painful thing about it is that in the U.S. in particular, five companies control about 97% of publishing, and that is not going to be the place where if there is a transition moment, it's not going to happen there. 
right? Like, those are companies that keep on keeping on and will keep on keeping on until they drive it into the ground and then will blame everyone but themselves for what's happened. As you talk about in the book there, it's not just publishing. Whatever's going to replace publishing, be that TV, HBO, or be that smartphones, be that, you know, Twitter, social media, the internet, it's all fundamentally owned by a a very small handful of white dudes. Yeah, I mean, I think in the US it's about 20 companies, and most of those companies are owned by people who look very, very similar to each other and have sort of ended up in that position through, you know, some of it is hard work and graft. A lot of it is hereditary. People who are born in, I mean, in the book, there's a takedown sort of of Rupert Murdoch. But Murdoch is funny because Murdoch is actually in a way really old school where he just sort of became the face of the thing. In the U.S., you know, now AT&T just merged with Time Warner. And so not only do they control the mechanism by which you receive it, but they also control this enormous amount of the content. Who the hell runs AT&T? I don't know. But you can imagine who it is. It's a, it's a faceless board of a bunch of white guys. Who, and part of what another thing the book is about is the weirdness in which we have started to view media as these parables about diversity and all of these things. And in a way they are, but in the end, the people who make the most money on them are not diverse in any way. It's like, you know, the Hamptons basically makes a ton of money off of it. And the Hamptons is not known for its uh, wide range of, or its spectrum of diversity. Well, we're going to come back to that a little bit later on, but let's talk about the book in more general terms, first of all. So as we mentioned, it begins as an attempt to write a fantasy novel of sorts, actually based on an existing, a real 16th century novel. Tell me about that, first of all. Yeah, uh, there's this piece of Elizabethan pulp fiction called The Most Pleasant History of Tom Lincoln. And what is really funny about it is it's actually it's it's work that has not gotten a huge amount of scholarship. And it has this section where Tom Lincoln, who is King Arthur's bastard son and then gets crowned uh, the Red Rose Knight, goes on all of these misadventures. And one of the places that he goes to is fairyland and fairyland isn't fairyland how we might imagine it it's just sort of an island of women who i think have been there it's not really specified in the book but have been there for a while and they murdered or expelled all of their men after they came back from some war and they crowned this woman the queen and when i started working on the book wonder woman had just come out And I found the response to Wonder Woman to be the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And then, you know, this I was looking at this and it's like, well, this is Wonder Woman. It's an island of women who are all warriors and who are hiding from the world. And so it was like, well, I don't know. Alan Moore does this all the time. I'll just steal a character from, you know, crap, crap literature. And then when I was writing the book, one of the things that I discovered, which to me seemed incredibly weird, was at some point it had been turned into a play 
that had been put on for the Christmas revels once at Gray's Inn. And then that seemed like even more of a validation of his technique. Cause it's like, well, now it's a, it's, it's part of a tradition of adaptation. The play is more faithful to the original than my book is, but <laughs> you know, and, and you can get, you know, like the play was published once. It, it, I think it's actually the last play from that period to be discovered. If I, I, I probably am not getting the story totally straight, but it's, it's like someone bought a desk at auction in the 1970s and then opened the drawer on this desk and there was the manuscript of a play of, of Tom Lincoln. And people have done some scholarship on it but very, very little. And that's great, too, because then you it's sort of free reign. That stuff had been sitting around in one form or another for hundreds of years, so there's something one can do with it. And then, yeah, and then the idea was I was going to do a fantasy novel that was written in the tone of I Hate the Internet and did do a complete draft of that and it kind of worked, it kind of didn't work. But one of, the, one of the things that happened was in the middle of doing it, Me Too happened. And it was like, fuck, if I don't really change this, everyone is going to think this is some right-wing allegory about Me Too, which it's really, really not. You know, like you can't post Me Too publish a novel about an island of women who have kicked out all of the men and not have people think that this is what it is. And it wasn't meant to be that. So, you know. One of my questions here, I have to say now you've mentioned it, is that one of my questions here is, is this a Me Too novel, which I did write just to, uh, just to provoke you? But... Yeah, I mean, it's a post-Me Too novel. I don't know. Me Too was... was really interesting because the Weinstein story broke and then there was this moment in which there was this incredible outpouring of people who weren't famous just talking about all these horrible experiences they had had and that seemed totally good and it still seems really really good but it also was complicated it was complicated because it happened on these platforms of expression that are owned by truly terrible people, essentially owned by the people you would want to me too, right? Like, I mean, I don't think, maybe that's a strong way of putting it, but I don't know how else to say it. It's like the moment where Twitter finally, after 12 years, became profitable was the quarter that encompassed me too. And it's like, the people who own Twitter are horrible. You know, like they are the patriarchy. There's no question that's what they are, both the institutional owners, the individual owners, the original investors who still have a piece of it. Like These are the people who make the world the way that the world is or have shaped the world in the direction it's gone. And it's like there is an inherently complicated thing when the people doing that, where you do have this moment where it seems like, well, maybe this will change everything, but it's also just profitable for the people it should be changing the world away from. And, I, you know, it's a depressing thing because that seems to me in the most abstract to be the world we're in now, right? How do you have a legitimate social protest in an era where the vast majority 
of protests are happening on platforms of expression owned by the people that you want to protest against. And even if there are some protests that aren't happening on those platforms, like if people are gluing themselves to bridges, you know, those people still have web pages. They still have like a Twitter. To, I don't know if that particular protest does, <laughs> so, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did that there is this online component. And just to be in the game, you have to be on certain platforms. But those platforms are owned by the people that actually you need to change the world away from. And it, it's become, it seems to me, like an insolvable problem of the moment. And maybe of the moment, and maybe this moment just doesn't end, right? Like, because I don't see an end to these companies. I don't see an end to, now that we've crossed whatever that Rubicon is, I don't see us going back to some kind of decentralized protest arena where people are organizing not on the internet. How do you, you know, how do you resolve those contradictions? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jarrett Kobeck and we're talking about his latest novel, Only Americans Burn in Hell. And Jarrett, we were just talking about Me Too and its ironic reliance on, on the internet and the people that profit from that. And there's a way of introducing another one of the major characters of this novel. It also struck me, and I think you raise a similar idea in the book, in some sort of cosmic way that Me Too happened because we have a legitimate sexual assaulter in the right. White House 
and seemingly nobody can do anything about it. Yeah. Like it just doesn't seem to matter. No, no. I mean, he, he, you know, Trump has ripped off the facade that I think animated at least the 20th century and a lot of the 21st century, which is that the way power is organized in Western democracies is different than how power has traditionally been organized, which is just sort of through horrible people with brute strength. And, you know, I mean, the country just went through this paroxysm of three years of Russiagate conspiracy, which I never bought into. And I have to say, if there is one silver lining in that report, it's like I did a few things where I said, much to the skepticism of the hosts that I was talking to. I was like, yeah, I'm sure they can get him on obstruction of justice because that's what this looks like. But I don't think the Russia thing is real. But it was this national paroxysm of people hoping there was some easy solution to the power structures of the country. And the truth is there isn't, right? Like, these guys are like shoes. I mean, he's a particularly deranged shoe, but there is a mechanism that has been in place and it has changed a little bit over time to put someone in that office. And, you know, sometimes it really puts terrible people into that office. I mean, I would argue almost all the time, but he's a particularly terrible example of it. And that's power. That's that's how things actually work. And I think so much of the post-war period was about, I don't know, this pretense of it working some different way. And it's like... What are you going to do? Can we talk a little bit about where Trump came from? Because, again, another one of the themes of the book is this this idea that, you know, all the people that are really upset by Trump now on the East yeah, and West yeah. Coast, people here that you describe in the book as the, the celebrity branch of American government, yeah. are ultimately the people that made him in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Trump is not a product of politics as usual. He is a product of a guy who was really, really good for business for decades, who then went wild, you know, like he just sort of veered off into something else. But, you know, there's an example that's not in the book because I don't remember why. I don't think I could make it work. But Saturday Night Live, which now has become sort of this media outpost of Trump resistance, they had that motherfucker on hosting the show in 2016, you know, that when he was still this joke candidate. And it was like, well, if we have Trump on, that'll be good for business. In a way, I don't think that's changed. You know, like he's really good for business. And and we're talking about the business of TV here, the not the business of, of the Trump Corporation. No, no, yeah. no, no. Well, I think, <laughs> it's I think a terrible as, business. As, as, exactly, <laughs> as I think time has proved, the Trump Corporation, I don't even know if it does business. You know, it's hard to say. But he is really good for the people who make money off of media. And he was for decades and decades and decades. One of the moments that doesn't ever get talked about, but one of the really transformational moments in news reporting was when in 1990, 89, he had his first divorce and then ignited this New York tabloid war because I think the New York Post, which is the Murdoch paper, was on the side of Ivana, right? That's his, that's the wife. Ivanka's the daughter. Um, 
they were they had her side, and I think the New York Daily News or Newsday was Trump's side, and so there's this, this daily war of what's happening with the Trumps now, what's happening with the Trump divorce now, and it's one of these moments where gossip culture really started to infect even very sober implements of the news because it's just great for business. And like, you know, it's a funny thing because it's like that was in a period where American media was more regulated. So it would be less clear that Trump, there was less of an ecosystem of like, well, I guess what would be described as vertical integration, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And the vertical integration of it is like, you can have Trump sell papers, you can have Trump sell ads on television, you can have Trump drive revenue to your websites. And with very few exceptions, those companies are all owned by the same people, you know, it's and and he was consistently good for business. Well, those companies have, I mean, it's a terrible excuse, but an excuse, money. You know, so over here, we have a similar thing happening where, the, you know, the venerable old BBC, which yes. is not supposed to be concerned about right. money and the making of, is entirely responsible for, you know, very much entirely responsible for, you know, the rise of the careers of people like Nigel Farage and Boris yeah, yeah, Johnson, yeah. who were seen as these, you know, being on comedy panel shows or whatever, right. or discussion programmes as some sort of bumbling comedy character. And here yeah. we are now. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the... The things which is only becoming clear is that uh, media figures can have a kind of potency that no one imagined they could. And that it's as entertainment and political life have conflated more and more, it's not that hard for people to make that transition. And that the rules by which people function in low media can easily be transplanted into politics and into other kinds of media. Like, what makes Boris Johnson and Trump so memorable? They have funny hair, right? And that's all you need. You need, like, one identifying characteristic that a media figure can be easily summed up by visually. And then they're really unstoppable. And it turns out, if you put that into politics, it also works. So... If you so, if anyone wants to be a dictator, they should get a bad haircut. That would be my suggestion. I want to take us back to you mentioned, and it you know it features in the book the um, release of the film Wonder Woman uh, yeah. a couple of years ago, and yeah. you know on a wider level the you know the rise of um, the superhero movie, uh, which Wonder Woman is obviously a part of, but also things like Game of Thrones, you yeah, know, again, yeah. which this uh, this novel is obviously sort of riffing off the popularity of and there was this amazing moment during the release of wonder woman which you know despite what you said you know about the idea that fundamentally this is a you know it's a product by a, a big corporation that's you mm-hmm. know, going to make billions of of dollars off the film it's, it's it's not really any sort of revolutionary thing and there was this idea that literally just going to see the film was a political act and then to be fair in a lot of ways that is true because clearly representation is incredibly Political. Important. I see. I no one agrees with me about this. Political representation is important. Representation in media that is not owned by the people that are being represented is a smokescreen. That it, and it's it's a painful thing. But I think it's true that you know you can have entertainment that people describe as empowering, or you can have it on, on all of these things. And I understand the argument for it. I just think ultimately the bottom line is where 
things go. And Wonder Woman was like a masterpiece of marketing around that because the movie itself is just a genocide simulator. You know, like there's nothing progressive in that film. It's about how someone can kill in a mass way like men can kill in a mass way. And I mean, that's not, you know, I, there's just nothing progressive about it. It's if the function of all of this stuff, of all of the political churning and all of the discussions about inclusion is that people who are not included can just be as terrible as the people excluding them, then it's already lost. Like, the the thing is lost, right? Like, you know, like, there's a point at the very end of the book, which out, without giving anything away, but it's like uh, four of the five CEOs in the U.S. of uh, major weapons manufacturers are now women. And it's like, you know, you can find articles celebrating this as some enormous achievement. And it's like, it's not... You know, I mean, it's just not. I want to talk about which other writers are perhaps an influence on this book, but let me rephrase that in which other writers that don't include Kurt Vonnegut are an influence on this book? <laughs> um, well, in the book, I say that Kurt Vonnegut and I are, are the reason why people keep mistaking me for Kurt Vonnegut imitator is because actually Vonnegut and I are ripping off the same writer, which is Louis Ferdinand Céline the notorious French anti-Semite. But he wrote, his last book uh, was part of a trilogy of books. And the first two books are him in his normal style, sort of writing about escaping the Allies because he was in the, he was in, with the Axis and now the retribution is coming. The third book called Rigadoon is him about to die, knowing the book will be published anyway. And just being like, well, I don't care. I'll just, you know, I'll sort of do this narrative, but mostly I'll just complain about the na- my neighbors or people who come to the door or any of these things. I mean, that's a huge influence on the book. Vonnegut is a huge influence. Um, I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe those are the two. I mean, there are writers who have been enormously influential on my development as a person and also my development as a writer. I'm not sure it's that visible in this book because one of the things that I really tried to do was remove anything in the book that seemed like it could come from someone else. Brett Easton Ellis is a big, I I would say, you know, there's a Saudi prince character in the book who in a way is just an update of Patrick Bateman, right? An American psycho, I would suggest. And this is in a moment, of course, where I'm speaking where Brett Easton Ellis has renewed his reputation as the worst writer of his generation. I'm supposed to be interviewing him on Tuesday, oh, and really? I, I'm really terrified by Just the tell him I say hi. <laughs> See how it goes. Um, he and I have an interesting relationship that has never had direct communication. He's a character. He shows up in The Future Won't Be Long, because mm. The Future Won't Be Long is a book about people in the 80s in New York, and it seemed insane to me that if you were writing about that milieu several years, several decades after the fact to not throw Brett Easton Ellis in the mix. And he was weirded out by it. He was really weirded out by it. It's like, dude, you do this to everyone. Um, but no, he, he, he actually was really responsible for the success of I Hate the Internet. I had mailed him a copy of the book and this French magazine showed up 
to his apartment and wanted to take a really decadent photo of Brett Easton Ellis. So it's him in bed. There were pills scattered all over the bed, and he's just reading, I hate the internet. <laughs> you should tell him I said hello. Let's I would definitely goes. do that. But anyway, you know, American Psycho is the most successful American novel of the last 30 years. It's a work. I had never read it, and I read it about seven or eight years ago. And it seemed to me, even then, enormously prophetic of the moment that we ended up in. Um, you know, you have these chapters where he's reviewing music, and it's just like, fuck, he's just blogging, you know? <laughs> and all of the technology, because the way that luxury goods works is it trickles down. You know, like all the technology he's interacting with is an early iterative version of the technology we all have to work with. And now, in the Trump administration, it seems particularly prophetic because who was writing a book in 1989 where Trump is just like this constant reoccurring theme? It's an amazing book. He's an amazing writer. I have not read White. I don't know (laughs) if it's actually good. But, you know, it is funny that he's managed to continue to get really terrible reviews this late in his career. I mean, if you read the New York Times review of American Psycho, New York Times should, from that review, retroactively be banned from ever reviewing anyone's books again because it is one of the stupidest reviews anyone's ever written about a major book. And then... The Review of White, which, I don't know, maybe it really is a terrible book. I haven't read it, but it just was like, if I were that publication and I had any institutional memory, I would feel really hesitant about giving this guy this bad of a review. But maybe it is that bad. I don't know. Just one more question then, and I'll I'll get you to read some if you would. And just sticking with other writers that are an influence, because you mentioned Alan Moore. Oh, yeah. A while ago, he's, he's, I can see there on on the cover of this novel, um, on the back is the the comedian Stuart Lee, who who you're actually coming to see you talking to tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I I, I only do these. I only do books (laughs) so that I can get Stuart Lee to hang out once every couple of years because he's impossible to get out of the house. And um, we talked earlier, completely unconnected with this, about um, the writer Ian Sinclair, who I've interviewed on the numerous occasions. And all three of these are are a sort of certain type of English eccentric. And I wondered what appeals to you about that sensibility. Uh the demographic uniformity, you know, white male English eccentrics that for whatever reason seems to be, no, I I should say there, there was a moment and I think it's still happening, but it's much more scattered. But there was this moment of a sort of loosely connected group of British writers and performers and a variety of things. And maybe Sinclair is the center of that. Maybe Alan Moore is the center of that. Maybe they're competing centers or overlapping centers. If you were an American writer or someone who's thinking about becoming an American writer, there's not a lot of examples of people who are in the mainstream who are engaging with the kinds of things that those writers or performers or whatever because who knows what Stuart Lee is, are engaging with. You know, like, there's not a lot of things to look at. And Sinclair, you know, Sinclair is brilliant. I mean, the book about the Olympics is the best book about gentrification 
that you can find. And the book about Hackney is also another really good book about gentrification. I mean, the idea of a guy living in the same house for 50 years as the neighborhood goes from, well, we're going to knock this house down to now you're living in the cultural hotspot of London and chronicling it across that time is... It's an astonishing contribution. And Alan Moore is sort of the same thing. I don't know. It made more sense to me than anything that I could find in the U.S. at the time. And they, all of them, I think, have sort of gotten an increased cultural profile in the U.S., with the exception of Alan Moore, who, you know, has been stalked by one of the biggest corporations in the world for several years. Yeah, he deliberately cut himself off yeah, from that thing. You but, know, as a, but, you know, he's been as a used. Principal. Yeah, but he's been used mm. by this company for decades. So, like, he's, he's always had a really prominent profile. The rest of them seem to be having more of a prominent profile in the U.S., but 10 years ago, 15 years ago, good luck. You know, I did a, uh, an, in, Alan Moore kindly did a video interview with me about this book, which is on YouTube, so people should go look at it. It's, if this 45 minutes of smugness hasn't been enough, there's another 45 waiting for you. Um, I have watched it. I really yeah. highly recommend it as well. It's a really great interview. Yeah, he, he was, you know, Alan is, for his, the reputation he has, a sort of, this crazy old man, he is actually an enormously supportive and very sweet guy and did not have to do it and sort of kindly gave his time to it. Can I get you to read a bit of yeah. The Americans Burn yeah. in Hell then? I, I find reading to be, I mean, like, this is one of the reasons why I do events with people talking to me because I, I don't think I can sell it. You can see it in my eyes. I don't have the human connection. <laughs> to any of this stuff, uh, to, like, the performative aspect of it. It's, it's really difficult. Um, I can just read a short section from the introduction, which has a little bit of England in it anyway. So that's going to be awful, by the way. <laughs> Me reading, uh, it, it shouldn't happen, but it's, it's part of the job. Um, so this is a section from the introduction of the book, which is called, the, the introduction is called Thank You for Your Honesty. It's about an email that I got, but this is in the digressive style of the book, me complaining about some of the things that uh, I've complained about in the interview. So thematically, I think we may have found a match. In the same month that Corey extended his invitation for food or caffeine, a major American publisher issued my follow-up to I Hate the Internet. It was a novel that ended up with the title The Future Won't Be Long. It was a massive commercial failure. Less than 300 copies sold in the first six months. I Hate the Internet sold 300 copies in its first two weeks. Reader, this was shocking. If for no other reason than the simple fact that The Future Won't Be Long was published by Penguin Random House... Penguin Random House is the biggest publishing conglomerate in the world. It's a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation owned by another multi-billion dollar multinational corporation called Bertelsmann, which spent much of World War II producing Nazi propaganda and using Jewish slaves to work in its factories. My book was backed by Nazi money, and it still failed. So what happened? 
For decades, everyone who had any pretense to high culture wasted fathomless hours talking about theorists like Michel Foucault and Jean Baudrillard. These people with pretenses to high culture had advanced the idea that reading incomprehensible French books gave them special insight into the way the world works. Sometimes they expressed this pretense in unreadable texts called master's theses or in doctoral dissertations. One of Baudrillard's ideas was very popular. He'd theorized that there would be a moment when reality collapsed into fiction, at which point it would then be impossible to distinguish the fake from the actual. He called this the hyperreal. But what neither Baudrillard nor his readers could ever locate was the exact moment when the hyperreal would replace the real. It was a mystery, floating point arithmetic without any definitive beginning. But then it happened. On November 8th or 9th, 2016 AD, while I was asleep in London's Little Venice, passed out in someone's former childhood bedroom above Blomfield Road, the real became hyperreal. Donald J. Trump, the world's best approximation of living fiction, whose body appears to be constituted of media coverage stitched together with plastic surgery, was elected to the presidency of the United States of America. When this happened, at around 6 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, a film crew was on Blomfield Road. They were shooting footage for a film called Paddington 2. The film was about a very fussy bear with a posh accent, its cartoon body generated by computers. The bear goes to prison and makes friends with inmates whose bodies were generated by loveless sexual reproduction. My smartphone started vibrating. People were sending me text messages of shock and awe. They were freaked the fuck out. What just happened, they asked. It turned out that the people who were least prepared for the hyperreal were the same people who'd spent decades talking about the hyperreal. They had no special insight into anything. A fog descended upon them. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. These people are my friends. And holy shit, these people did not see this thing coming. And double holy shit, did it ever make them annoying. So I've been talking to Jarrett Kobeck. We've been talking about his latest novel, Only Americans Burn in Hell, which is published in the UK by Serpent's Tale. And I guess for reasons which must be obvious by now, doesn't have a publisher in America. Jarrett, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.